Good morning, and welcome to a peculiar episode of Bloody Mary Bible Brunch. Um, this morning it's just me, Jim Barton, amateur theologian. Um, and basically I'm filling in uh, a little bit here to keep on our every two weeks schedule, but um, Abby and I just couldn't get together to do one um, um, together. So I'm going to just talk to you about the sermon that I preached um, at Chalice um, a few weeks ago. And essentially this sermon was about the nature of God in general. And I talked about how we have to um, find a way to image God if we expect to be able to relate to God. Um, so the first point there is that um, imaging God is different than imagining God. Um, imaging God means we have to find a way to um, sort of project what God is in our own brains and given the vastness of God, that's, a, that's not an easy task to do. But it is something we have to do if we hope to relate to God in any meaningful way. So, with that, I said, well, let's take a look at the Bible and see if the Bible gives us um, one answer or many answers. And of course, it turns out that the Bible gives us many answers on how to image God. And you can see in the Bible that um, those images, in fact, uh, evolve to some extent. So first off, we have um, we have in Scripture that you can actually tell, you can actually see the birth of monotheism um, in the Christian Scripture, and and I think the best place to go to see that happen is in Exodus six three. In Exodus six three, it's usually translated to say this: "I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but." By my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. So first off, you have a little yo to speak there. Um, it'd be more more clear to say, um, but I did not make myself known to them by my name, the Lord. The problem is when we use words like God Almighty and Lord, we use those today just interchangeably for God. Um, the Bible's doing something kind of, the translators rather, are doing something kind of tricky there. Um, a better way to say it would be, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, but not by my name. And then we get the, the uh, Y-H-W-H, which we often pronounce as Yahweh. So I, I didn't let them know me as Yahweh, but I appeared to them as El Shaddai. So Yahweh, probably the best way to pronounce Yahweh is the Ehe Asher Ehe, which is I am who I am, right? Because the Hebrews wouldn't have used the proper name. Um, for God. Um, but in any case, um, 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 it does give us these two proper names, El Shaddai and then uh, the, I am, the I Am Who I Am. So uh, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is that El Shaddai happens to be the name of the Canaanite God. And, and, it's, not just, and it's the Canaanite who's at the head of a pantheon, right? So um, within the Canaanite pantheon are a couple of figures that if you read the Old Testament, you're familiar with. Um, Ash, uh, uh, the uh, Asher, the goddess, uh, the consort of El Shaddai. Is, so you have these Asher poles, which the Israelites seem to keep building for some reason. And then you have ba Baal, Baal, who is the god of the harvest for um, the Canaanites. So the moral story here is that it seems that Abraham um, worshipped the Canaanite god, which would make sense because he was part of that first movement into Canaan. Now, the... The, the importance here is just to sort of see that we have evidence within our scripture of a confluence of various cultures coming together to make up the Hebrew people. But even after we have that, even after we have the Hebrew people uh, have sort of come together and they have one God, um, and, and let me pause there too, there's different names for God that are just names. Um, for example, 
Um, Elohim uh, means God. Um, Allah, which is used by uh, um, anyone speaking Arabic, uh, means God. God is the English word that just means God. So th those, those names, Elohim, Allah, God, are just generic um, words for God. And, and that sort of starts to take over as, as, as um, once we come to the idea that there is, there is not many gods, but one God. Um, I think the next important thing to talk about is other metaphors for God that nobody seems to worry about um, whether they're, they're um, literal or not, but we refer to God as the Redeemer. We refer to God as my rock. We refer to God as my shepherd. Um, in in some of the um, in some of the prophets, there's a discussion about Israel as being unfaithful, like an unfaithful um, lover to God. So um, again, I don't know that anyone um, thinks of God literally as lover, but it is that is a metaphor that's used by some of the prophets in the context typically of saying that the Israelites are unfaithful. Each of these images, though, carries weight with it. And if you read um, folks like, and I should give credit to, by the way, to um, Karen uh, Armstrong, who Karen Armstrong is who um, I got much of this stuff about the um, El Shaddai and that that material from. Although it's not it's not particularly controversial, but that's just the source that I use. If we then turn and now talk about talk about um, um, what this one singular God does, um, I'd like to point out that one image of God is a very intimate, close God. Um, you know, I said in my sermon, you know, this is the He walks with me, God. You know. Um, this is the God who, um, in Genesis, um, appears uh, to Abraham and has a meal with him. And this is Genesis 18, 2 through 3. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw the three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. So, so we have God literally appears to Abraham as a person and then God and then Abraham goes and and you know you know gets him a meal um, Jacob in Genesis 32 uh, oftentimes he wrestles with God you know oftentimes we sort of like try to like avoid this by saying that he wrestles with an angel when Jacob wrestles with an angel but the fact is um, in the story he's only the person with whom Jacob wrestles is only identified as a man right but that man won't tell Jacob that man's name. Furthermore, the man renames Jacob as one who's wrestled with God. That's what Israel means, wrestled with God. And then Jacob names the place, this is where I wrestled with God. So, you know, uh, that story is about um, one of the patriarchs wrestling with God. So that's a that's a God that's sort of intimate and close. Um, in my sermon, I separate this out, but in a, in a way it's, 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 uh, it's the same, which is God as the debate partner. Because um, we see many stories in the Bible about people... Um, arguing with God. Uh, one of the ones to note is that Moses, um, God wants Moses to be the head of the Israelites. Moses like basically refers to do it, right? And so um, because he refers to do it, refuses to do it, God is not happy with Moses, but he lets him use Aaron. This is an interesting idea, right? That God tells you to do something. You say, nah, I don't want to do that. What about this other thing? And then, and then you know, God relents. God changes God's mind. Um, also, when Abraham was talking to God about how many righteous people to find in Sodom. Um, he starts at needing 50 and uh, Abraham bargains him down to 10. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that's another interesting comment. We have a similar story, uh, by the way, in, in Islam where uh, 
Moses is negotiating down how many times they have to pray a day. And that's how he, Moses gets him down to five. He has to, he has to pray five times a day, um, which is, you know, which we get from one of the tenets of Islam. Um, but that's another example, this notion of God, of the I am who I am, um, being capable of being bargained with, right? Okay, so that's one version of God. And that's the version of God that we get from the second creation story in, in, in Genesis, by the way, where God, where you blow life into the, um, uh, into the mud, right? Where God scoops up, this is in Genesis 2, where God scoops up the, the dirt and blows and blows life into that, into that mud. The other image of God, which comes probably largely from the priestly tradition, if you talk about the Yahwist, Elohimist, uh, Deuteronomist, and priestly um, authors of the Bible, this is largely from the priestly tradition, is this God of who's unapproachable. This is a God who's on the mountain when Moses is getting the Ten Commandments and there's like, it's covered with smoke and fire. You can read that in Exodus 19. Um, this, this is the God um, who, um, you know, uh, various prophets say, will this God ever change his mind? God isn't like a human. God doesn't change God's mind. That, that, that phrase is used a couple of times in scripture to describe how powerful God is. Note that God, in fact, does change God's mind several times by other storytellers. But these tellers who say, you know, um, in the, this is um, primarily in the mouth of uh, Samuel, the, um, um, the prophet Samuel, and then also in um, the mouth of uh, uh, one of the uh, enemies of, uh, of uh, Israel, um, um, Balaam. Okay, this God all culminates together in the God of Genesis 1, who calls things into being. So think about this, in Genesis 1, that God is a God who says, let there be light and there is light. Um, this is a God who creates everything, right? So whereas the God in Genesis 2 actually walks on an earth that is already made and plants a garden, right? And then when the people are found there naked, you know, he comes, this is a very personal image of God, but it's also a God who's, who doesn't create everything. There's a lot of creation already happened. In Genesis 1, it's just nothing. It's void, it's darkness, it's chaos. Not only that, you'll notice that in Genesis 1, God creates the sun and the stars and the moon. Those are gods that other people worship. The sea monsters, those are gods that other people worship. So what we have is we have an evolution of God to become sort of the, the almighty God and um, the God who's created everything and the God of the whole world. And that's the last sort of evolution I think I want to point out is that when Solomon dedicates the temple, Solomon dedicates the temple to the God who is the God of the whole world, right? So we've gone from a God of just a small God to a God of a whole world. And we've gone from a God who is um, uh, the sort of poly the best among all the gods to the only God. So what does that mean for modern Christians, by the way, I think is that we are compelled to think about what is our image of God. Um, we know that there's not a solid firmament above the earth, and we know that God doesn't reside above that solid, solid firmament. Um, we've been to the moon. Um, um, we know that there are, um, we, we know more about the mechanics of the world, and actually I wouldn't shouldn't even say we know more. We understand the mechanics of our world differently, and so that compels us to find a meaningful image of God for ourselves. One of the images that I'd like to throw out as I wrap up here is the idea that God is in everything and then some. Um, this isn't foreign from the Psalms. There's plenty of places in the Psalms where we discuss that God is present in the storm and God is present in all of creation. And God is a part of the creation. Um, but I think that as modern um, thinkers and as modern religious people, we should feel free to contemplate what would that mean for God to be in everything? It would mean that I'm a part of God and you're a part of God, but that God is something beyond that. It's some transcendent notion of God. Um, 
I would say that God is real and as much as love is real and beauty and truth. These ideas are um, ideas that exist in the world, um, but they're other than physical reality. They require a physical reality. For you to have love, you have to have things that exist, right? But love is something different than existence. And so um, this is an idea popularized for me by Marcus Borg. I don't know, I'm sure he didn't come up with it, but it's it's called panentheism, P-A-N-E-N-T-H-E-I-S-M, panentheism, not pantheism, pantheism, Pantheism is many gods. That would have been the Canaanite pantheon we talked about. This is panentheism. This is God in all things. So um, um, it's a different idea. It's not. Um, it's not certainly the only idea, but it is the way that that I um, relate to God most intimately and most um, passionately. So um, I recommend that to you. And um, in the next two weeks, uh, Abby and I will get back on our ordinary schedule. And until then, until then, cheers. <laughs>